Welcome to We Shadows, the podcast about design and technical theater in the Twin Cities. I'm your announcer, Anita Kelling. We as a theater industry continue to work through the issues of inclusivity and diversity in the stories we tell. In this episode, Lisa Behrens and costume designer Trevor Bowen sat down to explore how we engage people, who we collaborate with, and the communities we build as we move through the world, all through the lens of costume design. This conversation took place on April 9th, 2021. Thank you, Trevor, for coming to visit and uh, chat today. Um, I was would love to start off if you could just kind of explain to people who maybe don't know exactly what you do because you are a costume designer. Um, if you can explain a little bit to someone who maybe doesn't work in theater or is new to this world, what that might be, and what your job is. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my role as a costume designer means that I'm responsible for all of the clothes and uh, in addition to the hair and makeup that each performer wears in each act, in each scene of a play, musical, opera, dance, uh, whatever the production is. And what that means is that I, I take care to design things and to procure items that speak completely to the character, whether that means we're, we're purchasing something, whether that means we're building something from scratch, or if it's something... Uh, that we uh, maybe pull from stock and alter to the performer. Um, my purview is to make sure that the overall visual composition composition of the people on stage is uh, uh, clear and coherent and thoughtfully designed within the parameters of the, of the uh, concept. So that includes, I will just continue, that includes jewelry, that includes undergarments, that includes socks, that includes any accessories like gloves or hats. Uh, sometimes that includes um, bags or briefcases that someone may carry. Um, that also includes sort of how their hair is styled. Um, and even an unstyle is still a style <laughs> or the idea yeah. of like kind of <laughs> a natural look to the face is still a design choice. So we will also uh, design and curate that look for performance as well. And are you, um mostly purchasing things or is this something where like sometimes you're building them and who is building those things when? when sometimes, um, built? oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it depends. It definitely depends on the project because some shows uh, is they're all about purchasing um, the garments. And it's actually very important that we maybe purchase things that feel very contemporary for a show that's maybe set in 2020, 2021 in the present. Um, Sometimes there's a mix, so we may um, do some thrift shopping, maybe some new garments. Uh, if uh, a build is in order, uh, we'll uh, secure the, the resources of like a draper or a stitcher or a tailor. And what that means is more often than not, I will sketch uh, what the idea is, what the ultimate outcome of the design is. Uh, from there, I procure fabrics and notions and have conversations with the person building the, the costume. And we'll really talk through details. Uh, like maybe if there's a pant hem, what kind of pant hem? How deep is mm -hmm. the cuff? Uh, do sleeves need to be shortened? Um, is this a quick rig? Does, does this costume need to perform some sort of a trick? Does someone need to get into it quickly? Um, does someone need to get out of it quickly? 
uh, will they have assistance putting this thing on? Um, also, is it important that we see specific closures sometimes? Sometimes we, we may fake uh, buttons on, on a garment and actually it's rigged with Velcro, but other times it's actually really important that we see someone manipulate a closure, like unbutton a shirt or button up a mm. shirt. Um, yeah. So all of those things um, helps kind of also set some pace uh, and a rhythm to the clothes as well. Uh, it may actually be really integral to the blocking of a scene, like how someone interacts with their garment, with their costumes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense that there'd be some tweaking that has to happen or changing. It's awesome. Uh, Trevor, how did you actually decide or get started in this industry? Did you go to school for this or did you just happen to really love sewing? Um, how did you actually decide that this was the path that you wanted to take? Mm. Uh, well, when I was in uh, junior high, I started to become, actually probably before that, in middle school, I remember seeing my grandma um, sewing for herself and she was making a pair of pants and I really wanted to know how she was doing it because it was so fascinating. She was, um, she laid out a paper pattern on top of this fabric and it just felt like, you know, a week later she had, like she was wearing these things <laughs> that were originally 2D and now they're 3D. It's magic. And I remember, yeah, it, was, it totally felt like magic. And I remember asking her and she was like, well, make something yourself. Uh, so I figured out that I wanted, uh, what was the need, right? And I was like, the need was I needed a, a CD player holder um, for my Walkman. So <laughs> grandma has some of this blue terry cloth and then there was no pattern for it. So she showed me how to, how to soft, you know, how to drape it over the, the, um, the CD player and, you know, cut around it and seam allowance. And there's a little flap over it. Um, and she just showed me how to use the machine. It was an old tabletop singer that she used. Um, and I made this thing for myself and now I had like a soft cover for my CD player that I made myself. Uh, and then from there it was like, oh, okay, what, what else can I like tinker with? What else can I make? And looking back a little bit, it was like, oh, I have some, I have a little bit of, um, agency and control over my environment, you know, like living at home, being a teenager, you're trying to figure a lot of stuff out. And I was like, oh, I can just like, I can make things. And at the same time, um, I was like really, really into macrame. So it was also like, I had a little hustle that I was like selling things to the kids at school, like little jute and hemp necklaces, little beaded necklaces. Um, nice. And I'd just be making them all the time. Uh, so anyway, from there uh, in high school, <laughs> I started in drama and I was like, oh, this is really great. And I started off as an actor and I was like, this is so cool that I get to become someone else. I get to meet these people that I never would have interacted with because the drama class, you you have people who were more interested in science, you have people who are more interested in a foreign language or uh, people who are much more interested in sports. And it was like, well, in this class, there was no sense of hierarchy. We were all there to create. We were all there because we loved uh movies and and performance and all of this stuff and had an interest to it and our teacher was very good about uh creating a community in that space looking back uh so i started off as an actor was really enjoying it went on to um undergrad with an acting scholarship um and i remember the first show that we did and it's filled with glass buys a loaf of bread and uh 
it's all set to uh, uh, a fugue, like his music. So everyone had this role, and then uh, the 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 piece gets more and more complex and more and more layered. Um, and I remember listening to Einstein on the beach, like we were all listening to Einstein on the beach, just as inspiration. I was like, this is amazing. Like it was so cool. Um, and I became a fan, but when it came time to perform, there was something where I was sort of complete, I had completely removed myself from the environment. And I was like, there are lights, there are people moving around. Um, we were on a rake. It was like a big raked clock face was this, was the set. Um, okay. I can't see anyone out in the audience, but there's people watching us. <laughs> I, think I was like, this is not, this is not for me. I ain't trying to have people like look at me like this. Um, and it didn't yeah, feel it felt right. Weird. It was like, it felt weird. And it felt like this is not, this is not how, and at the time I was also like 18. I was like, this is still right for me. The medium is right, but my role within the medium is not right. So fortunately, we had yeah. revolving assignments. The next assignment was uh, wardrobe for Tartuffe. And it was like, you know, like mending socks and laundry and steaming and presetting clothes for actors backstage and assisting with quick changes and going left mm-hmm. to right. And I was like, oh, this is this is absolute magic. No one knows that I'm here. Um, I'm I'm supporting the show in a completely different way. There's a whole other show happening on backstage that is just as choreographed as what the actors are doing on stage. And mm. I was like, this this feels really good. Like you know that feeling when you get like um when you've done a, a job or a task and you just feel a little warm and you're like, I felt really good. It's not just a matter of checking, you know, checking something off your list. It was like, oh, this is oh, this is how I fit into this. Uh, <laughs> yeah it fits another I, yeah, part I, of your body <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I love the responsibility um I love talking to the actors um and already coming just from that from that side of things in high school and that first performance and I ended up doing another performance in undergrad too similar response uh similar kind of physical response um but I, I felt as though I, I really could empathize with sort of what they were doing and why it was important that, you know, we see a crease in a sleeve or why the costume doesn't smell bad when they go on on stage, you know, like, um, yeah. and start to how to, and how to problem solve some of these things as well. Um, so from then, you know, from that point, it was like, oh, it's, it's all about costuming. Like, how do I learn? How do I learn more? And the school I went to, uh, there was no costume faculty. I think there was, there were two faculty members that stitched, and they could they could kind of do some pattern manipulation. They weren't costume designers. Um, our two faculty members were an acting director and the technical director, so they shared what they could. Um, and I often, like I I am I was uh, a big fan of just fashion, and a lot of the things that I would do, like I ended up doing two costume designs when I was there. Um, and they ended up being all about, um, like they're very much referencing runway shows and not having a sense of sort of depth and technique and nuance. It was just really me saying like, that skirt's cute, that top's cute, pink is in, mm-hmm. I like lace, whatever. And it, I don't know if it really had anything to do with analysis and design. It had a lot to do with styling, um, which is, pretty integral skill I think too um Mm -hmm. so it it wasn't until uh graduate school 
that I really learned, like technique, like the craft of the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the how to analyze the script, how to how to actually figure out the character background kind of stuff more. Yeah, and and how to make clothes, like really how to make clothes, and really how to make costumes, you know, and and how to as a designer, um, to begin to communicate to a draper and a stitcher and a tailor, uh, and really understanding, like beginning to understand that relationship that I'm not, I'm not going to be. I can sew, I can do these things, mm-hmm. but there are also people who are like extraordinary at it who, and who are as passionate about uh, artisanal side of it as I am about the design side. And like when those two come together, it's pretty, it's pretty magical. Yeah. It's beautiful getting two perspectives, like the craft person, the artistic craft person and, and the designer eye person to communicate. I think things get better every time. You've got this Absolutely. multiple layers of people. Um, have you ever had anyone that you like looked up to as like a, a mentor or was that kind of just like um, in general, lots of people or did you uh, have someone who kind of helped you out as you got started? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I was just, <laughs> I was just talking to, um, to Drapers yesterday uh, about this. Uh, it wasn't a direct conversation. It just kind of came up on, out of something else. Um, so for a long time, like once I graduated uh, from graduate school, uh, I went to work in a costume shop immediately as uh, assistant costume uh, shop manager. But essentially what I really was doing, I was really doing a lot more shopping. And this is at the time of the recession. So this is like 07, 08. Um, and what was interesting about that time is that I wasn't sure what I was going to do, even though I graduated with a degree in costume design, MFA in costume design. What was really helpful at that time was that it was a space where um, I had some financial security and I was able to really learn on the job. So I could, I could continue like craft education, like understanding more about dyeing techniques and aging and distressing and sewing. Um, and I was learning from these designers and what was interesting about that time period is that, um, so I was in, uh, New Haven at the time. And what was interesting is that you had a lot of Broadway designers coming to New Haven or maybe even coming back to New Haven. Like maybe they've gone to school there or they had, they had done some work. This is at Longhorn mm-hmm. Theater in New Haven. But because, you know, Broadway was slow or like, um, all these other kind of larger East Coast houses, it was a slow work and internationally it was slow. Like you had these designers that we had just learned about in grad school, or they those are the people that you sort of just hear about. These are the, the, some of the names. They would come, and that theater is small. So it was like, oh, you actually get FaceTime with these people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, so I can maybe start to understand. So it was great to be able to just talk to them. Um, and, and start to really learn sort of really what their schedule is like and really start to understand why on some of these shows um, you may not see that designer very often. And it's like, well, because they're actually working on like many, many other things. Um, and just starting to understand sort of like the nuance within the costume design or say maybe theatrical design community, sort of like the multiple ways of access and the multiple ways that one can work. Um, 
But you just, I learned so much from those designers. Um, yeah. And Al, I mean, I, I guess I can say a few uh, that were really helpful. Like starting in graduate school, um, my mentor, Peggy McCowan at WVU, like she was great, just sort of like first trip, like she brought us on our first trip to New York, first trip to Swatch, um, and to really understand sort of how to do that and how to, we were swatching for a show that she was working on. And really as an assistant and as a student to really understand uh, uh, this level of communication when someone's imparting information to you to really sort of like combine sort of what you know about fabrics or whatever it is, conceptually mm -hmm. what they're talking about, how to read a sketch, and then how does that manifest as you're choosing these options, these fabric options or notion options or trimming options um, and understanding sort of like why things why something may work, why something doesn't work. Like it was just a really dynamic conversation that we were able to have through my years there. Uh, and then working after, and I was at Longwood for like maybe four years and then I became design assistant and the relationship with the, with those designers was really invaluable. And I'll say in particular, uh, like uh, working with Devin Painter, uh, she's, she's just fantastic. Um, and a great teacher. And what's interesting is that, you know, there's so much learning happening, even while you're working, mm -hmm. um, if you're, if you, if you choose to receive it, um, and Jess Goldstein, uh, and Fabio Tablini, and Alona Samoji, um, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank right now, but <laughs> there, there's Hard several, to remember names. <laughs> there, there's, there's several people, um, Tony Leslie James, for sure. Um, about really, about really how to work and really how to um, uh, communicate with performers to to really understand sort of that merger that happens between someone who's having this very embodied experience as a character and someone who mm -hmm. is having a very kind of uh, three dimensional uh, uh, compositional view of a character and really understanding sort of like the power in the costume for me anyway. And what I really get excited about is when those things emerge. Mm -hmm. When you, um, and that's a sort of like, oh yeah, when a performer can live in that space, uh, I, I feel like that's when a costume design is successful. Um, and I think helps contribute to a successful performance and hopefully a production overall. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so you said you were at uh, a, a theater in New Haven. How did you end up in Minneapolis? So <clears throat> I was at Longworth Theater in New Haven. And I, after the four years I was there, it really felt like, uh, I think I, I need to move on. I think I need to do something else. But I really wasn't sure what that was. Um, I was considering like moving to New York and continuing to assist. There was a lot, there's a lot of, there was a lot of joy in that. And I thought, oh yeah, like everybody, like all all the designers and all this work is in New York. Like, uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, really I'm like two and a half hours away. So it's like, oh yeah, I could still live here. And, you know, can you do that thing? Um, mm -hmm. And then Jess Goldstein, um, person I, who, a designer that I assisted, he had mentioned that there was an opening for uh, the overhired DA position at the Guthrie. And he had, he had, He's worked at the Guthrie many, many years. Um, and I was like, oh, really? Okay. 
Uh, and he was very much like, I think this this might be a good fit for you with what we knew of each other. Uh, and we had worked on, we just worked on like a couple of projects together. And, and I think just had like a really good working relationship and trusted mm-hmm. each other. Um, and him saying that, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, he, he knows this institution. He's worked there many years. And I know what I need is to understand how to work in a much, much larger environment um uh, production wise yeah absolutely um so i applied um and i asked a couple of other designers that i worked there like devin painter used to be the design assistant at the guthrie as well um so i was really i was like okay let me do let me do my research Mm -hmm. what's going on who are these people (laughs) i don't know minneapolis it's the Um, nice thing about the mentors yeah right and I also had a strong feeling of not wanting to move back to the Midwest. I'm originally from Oklahoma. And I was like, uh, I I left for, <laughs> for many reasons. And I was like, so I'm going to like go back? Oh, is this is this really the best career move for me? Yeah. So I, so, um, and which is pretty interesting too, because I also didn't know the, the Guthrie in relationship to the Twin Cities. Uh, that institution's relationship with the Twin Cities and knowing that the Guthrie is such um, a sought after space, I think, for a lot of technicians and artists to work in. Um, So ultimately, you know, like how competitive it is. Uh, So I I talked to Amy, the costume director, uh, just on the phone, right? And uh, there were some other things that were happening that I didn't know. Like, I I didn't know that, like... um, there were some people that I had talked to. They had also spoken to Amy on my behalf as well. And I was like, oh, oh, cool. Um, <laughs> so I, I got hired, um, moved here in 2012. Um, and I was the overhired DA on the proscenium stage for, it was a nine month contract. Yeah. And what kept me here, because uh, I was still very much like, I, I still had a stores unit back in Connecticut. Like I was very much like, well, I'm here to work and I'm yeah. here to learn. And then I'm going to move back with this knowledge that I, that I've gained. Um, I've keep, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it was, and I will, I will name these two fabulous, three, actually three fabulous people. Uh, Carrie Monroe, who's a wardrobe person at the Guthrie. She had mentioned my name to Elizabeth McNally, the production manager at Pillsbury House, because they needed a designer mm-hmm. for a show that coming fall. Um, and I was like, wow, like, uh, Thank you, Carrie, because I, for my work was as not as a designer, it was as a design assistant. Like I'm not making choices, you know, I, I assist, but I, yeah, I'm not designing anything in that role. So for her to even suggest, I was like, that's pretty awesome. Um, So I had a formal interview um, with Faye over at Pillsbury House and uh, they, yeah, I, I was hired there. And it was for the road reach the well ones dry with Marion McClinton, and it was sort of like from from there that's what kept me here because the show it was definitely a challenge, um, but it was a challenge that I, I enjoy taking on. It was just sort of like when you see when you see that mountain, it's like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm I'm gonna climb that mountain. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Like what whatever that means, uh, I know I'll only learn and I'll actually be a better designer and a better person for it. So that actually just switched my role too. Cause it was like, Oh, I think, Oh, I think I'm a costume designer. 
Yeah. Um, you know, even you know, even though going to school for it for three years, I, all that other mess, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, maybe yeah. I guess I guess I like doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, that, until <laughs> yeah, until you do it outside of college or outside of some sort of educational place, and someone says you'd be good at this, go here. Sometimes it's hard to realize that that's really what you're great at or what you want to be doing. I totally get that feeling. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so Trevor, you are, um, you identify as a, as a black man, you are a black man. Um, and how do you think that that has either related to your work or in general, how do you think that that has related to the way the Twin Cities uh, theater community is now and was maybe when you started in town? Um, you know, I think everything that I do, and I know that everything that I do um, relates to me and how I move through the world, uh, whether that be, I think, probably first and foremost, as a Black man, um, as a gay Black man, as a member of the Q BIPOC uh, group of folks in the world. Um, so I think that's really informed the choices that uh, I try to keep consistent, like, in the work that I do. Um, and what that means for me is that like working on shows that that also talk about that talk about marginalized people's experience in a very like whole, truthful, realistic, um, and I, I guess also sometimes like um, silly way because I think there's also some truth to sort of the things that we tell ourselves as opposed to sort of the the the, uh, the whole truth of our experience. So I think my goal is to hopefully like be a part of those presentations and productions and showcases um, to add something that is like unique to myself and also kind of be an mm -hmm. ear as I can be to help translate things that um, I may not fully understand, but I hope to seek to understand from other marginalized groups um, and also to understand mm -hmm. that the world that we live in it's not one that celebrates, that wholly celebrates sort of the breadth of human experience. I think also with, with that being said, um, I think the Twin Cities, uh, some spaces in the Twin Cities, I think have done an amazing job and I think have, have, been, have really fully embraced me as a designer, creative person, maker um, in their culture of inclusivity and celebrating the breadth of human experience. Um, I think all of us, myself included, have a lot more work to do to make sure that we're always amplifying those voices and to, to recognize all of our privilege, because mm -hmm. we all have some privilege that we need to not only acknowledge, but also sort of take care and how are we bringing others with us, you know, on this journey. And if we're receiving some success, how are we, how is that going back into the community? How is that not just benefiting us, but benefiting the community? Because um, until sort of we're all mm -hmm. seen as equal and treated as equal and having all of our rights respected, it's incumbent upon all of us, um, especially if we're like able to be out in the world and to sort of have something to say. That like we, we have to bring like community folks with us and we have to engage some institutions with uh, new ideas and knowing that that might be a challenge, but that a challenge is not necessarily a bad thing. A challenge is an opportunity to learn something, you know, yeah. and to be a better person. Yeah. Are there 
are there ways that you like to, like if there's a story you're working on that is of a marginalized community, but isn't necessarily one that you are a member of, that's a weird way to say it, but you know what I mean? Like if, if it's of a, a different marginalized community, are there good ways that you have found that you can try to make sure to get in touch with that community or find out more about how to tell that story? Yeah, I think oftentimes it's not just about like doing good online research. It's about talking to folks in the community. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're working on a show um, with a group that is not necessarily representative of your experience, you have to you have to talk to people who go through that experience. That may be as close as your um, your performer or group of performers that you're working with, and to engage with them and and ask them sort of like, what is in their body as they're working? Or what is it like mm-hmm. to live a day in those shoes? Because no one knows, no one really understands uh, someone else's lived experience to the depth, right? Than the person that has actually gone through these experiences. Um, yeah. So I think for me, if I'm working on that show, like there have been moments where uh, if it's with youth performers, I may go visit a school um, and I may actually just sit mm-hmm. in the classroom for a minute to really see, like, how are kids engaging with each other? How is the teacher engaging with the students? Um, how do they work together? How do they communicate? Um, yeah. If it's someone from uh, a different minority group, it's talking to people in that community. It's talking to those performers and asking them, uh, and also doing your own work. It's also not about you relying completely on this person to to give you some sort of um, uh, lesson. I think you have to yeah. you have to do some work yourself and make it a conversation. Because uh, I think oftentimes we can easily go to a place of, well, you know, let me do all of this work or, or making some assumption about someone and not even trying to yeah. work on your own just to sort of further, further your knowledge and understanding and understanding that it's not about uh, it's not about superficial details. It's about sort of the, the depth of knowledge that it creates, like, I think a good costume design, um, mm-hmm. and a good collaboration. Um, so I think understanding someone's like culture and lived experience is really important. <clears throat> yeah. Not, ma- not making them do all of the emotional labor, having yourself have some of that information before you start asking them questions or whatever. Makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I think, and I think also just being able to ask thoughtful questions that have some depth to them, you know, <clears throat> I think that's really helpful. Are there are there ways that you think um, think that we would be able to work towards finding um, more space and more ways of making it easier for people who are um, of color, uh, who are black, who want to come in? to this industry? Um, yeah, I think back back to it being insular, because like theater is still pretty insular, I think even it, regardless, and I think mm-hmm. definitely in the Twin Cities, um, there's still such kind of a threshold with, uh, with I think, institutions, and I think with us, uh, even as like design professionals, it feeling like, well, you need to be at some sort of level and us becoming like gatekeepers of, of a sense. Yeah. And really keeping people back that may not have some sort of traditional education in theater, which I th- which 
as I, as I've done this longer, which I think is it's kind of bull uh, that you need to have some sort of education to be able to tell stories when stories are integral or kind of like a key component of humanity. It's like yeah, how dare you, how, cool. yeah <laughs> how how dare you say to someone just because you haven't you don't have some sort of like four year terminal degree that you're not qualified to tell a story or to create a garment or mm-hmm. or to construct something or to create a lighting design. I think there's many ways that people can visually communicate. And I think this the stratification that happens in theater is something that, that needs to leave the industry because it does become more about gatekeeping and keeping people out uh, rather than letting people in who are multiple, uh, m- multiple uh, disciplinary folks. Um, yeah. And I think I know that I've learned a lot from folks who are more uh, in the fine arts realm <clears throat> or who are makers that are really making from a different standpoint. And it's not all about sort of like knowing some sort of uh, couture technique of sewing or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think I think that's one way. And I think also just having more communication like if you're going to tell a story about indigenous folks, if you're going to tell a story about folks in the Rondo neighborhood, well, talk to the folks in the Rondo neighborhood. Like why, yeah. why do I need to, why, why do I need to sort of like do some sort of like online research or something or just going to the history center, which is, yes, great resources. Basically, let's talk about, let's talk to those people if we're telling a story about people. You know about about these groups. Let's talk to folks in those groups. Um, yeah, making sure that they actually get uh, the information from the correct people and from the from the source, in a sense, rather than second hand, <clears throat> third hand, fourth hand from whatever book you find. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, because I think because it, it, it also ties into. Um, I know you didn't ask me this, but I'll, I'll just kind of bring up a sort of like anything you want to talk about, man. <laughs> it's it's such a, I think it's such it's, it can be such a fine line to going into uh, appropriation, you know, mm-hmm. or queer baiting in a story um, if you're not actually speaking from a place of like cultural knowledge and actually talking to people who live live their lives. Uh, within within a specific group or in a, in a specific way to really seek some sort of understanding so it's not about choosing something that is purely surface level um yeah i think yeah yeah i i do like that 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 is a helpful way for for myself who is very much a white woman and straight uh i i always have that like struggle whenever i'm doing a show that is about people who do not look anything like me. And so I, I have to do a lot more of the like, how do I make sure that I'm not stepping on their story and I'm not telling their story from my point of view. And so finding ways to connect with the actual communities is very helpful in yeah. that way or yeah. finding other designers to work with and other people. Um, I always love when I get to work with someone who is a little closer to the story than I am. Because uh, they have a different perspective than I do, for sure. Um, uh, I think sometimes it's it's not a bad thing, you know, for for organizations to reach out to the community if there's a if they're telling a story from uh, a marginalized group of folks that uh, that they may not have uh, knowledge about. 
it's okay to engage that community. It's okay to bring on um, uh, someone with, with close ties to the community, a member of the community, you know, to have conversations with the design team. I think sometimes those happen with the acting team, but it's actually very important, I think, to have those with the design team so that everyone on the team really understands sort of why we're doing the story, why the organization is doing the story, um, yeah. and why they think it's important. Um, I think the more conversations that we're having with like real folks who are living their lives in this way, the less we're going to, the less we're going to have instances of, um, uh, of kind of, um, appropriation, you know, of just sort of taking yeah. superficial elements of, of someone's lived experience and, and just kind of flashing those on display rather than sort of using those, um, as ways to really tell someone's story and understand the, the breadth of someone's experience. Yeah, I think that's good advice to talk with that community, always. Always. Are there things that you're still looking to to do with your career specifically, in either in that realm, or is there like, someday I would love to design this show, or, mm. or is it just whatever the next show is? Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh. I think if you had asked me that before the pandemic, I think I probably would have had like a long list of like uh, bucket list shows. But I think like through this, I don't, I don't feel that way. You know, I think if it's if it's a project that speaks to me and it feels like a project that's going to challenge me, and that is with people that uh, I like, <laughs> that helps a lot. <laughs> and people, yeah, like, I think it's really important. I, I've come to realize it's sort of like, we spend so much time together and the work that we mm-hmm. do is very hard. Uh, and if you're not going to do it with, like, folks that you enjoy being around, um, and then also maybe enjoy the work uh, in, in a, uh, not not so much in a similar way, but have a, a strong passion for the, for the work or for community or whatever, uh, th- there's no sense in doing it for what I said before because we get paid so little, <laughs> and because yeah. there's so much time involved. It's like, oh goodness, yeah, yeah. I totally get <clears> that. Where <throat> the work of who you're working with is more important than where or a and what the show is is important. Yeah, because you're com- you're creating a community, right? Like we may be in concert together, uh, an intense community for maybe like what eight weeks. I don't know, however long pre-production or production goes, but we're still a community, and it's uh-huh. like, like, uh, so you ain't want to talk to your neighbor, you know? Like my neighbor is the scenic designer. My neighbor is the A two. My neighbor is uh, the lighting designer. It's like, well, like I I want to be able to like freely talk to everyone and I want to feel like we're all on the same page and we all want the same goal for the production ultimately yeah yeah and uh you do a lot of uh collaboration with those other people to get to what you're doing so if you don't get along with those people it makes the collaboration harder I would assume work 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 and I don't really (laughs) feel like and I don't really feel like going to work. That's why I work in this way. That's why I've chosen to work in this way. Um, uh-huh. And I don't want to feel like that. That's not fun. Yeah. And I totally get that. Yeah, it's not as much fun when it's... When what we do, which is work, feels like work. 
it, it's yeah. more fun when it feels like creating something out of nothing and um in that area um and as as a as um a gay individual do you also feel like similarly to um having not enough black people in our industry is that kind of the same thing for you um in that or stories being told or is that a li- like does that feel like it's a little further along but maybe it's not i don't actually know um still not enough people of course i always think it's um it will never be it will mm-hmm. never be because i think we're just in a we're in a society that favors sort of uh still like heteronormativity and cisgender folks uh, still, you know, and I, I think that it's never going to be enough representation. There's never going to be enough. Uh, and I hope like someday people are going to be like, well, this tribe we're talking about, that's crazy. Like we're in a, you know. Yeah, uh, I hope they prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is like all things are not equal and we're, we're, far, we're far away from that. Um, yeah. So I think with like, uh, queer stories, and I think particularly like uh, uh, Q BIPOC stories, there, there's not enough of them. Um, and I, I think there's still just such, I think, a um, stereotype for a lot of people of sort of like what a queer person looks like or sounds like or moves through the world. Um, and I think even adding, you know, people of color into that, I think there's, just such, there's still just sort of a lack of um, understanding of the breadth of the communities um, that evolve is sort of like, why would you ever, like no one ever thinks that, um, uh, or most people don't think that, you know, uh, heterosexuality is uh, is, is uh, one thing, you know, or that, that gender or sexuality, uh, I think we still think those things are binaries and they're not binaries. They've never been binaries. You know, I think the conversation that's starting to happen now um, is not new. We're just having the conversation. You know, it's not something that has just happened. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so I think until those stories become just as commonplace as sort of like uh, some standard fare at theaters, when sort of like, yeah, there's this, yeah, because we're telling stories about people. Like, that's what we do. Of course, of course, we're telling stories about queer folks queer BIPOC folks, trans folks, like, yeah, like, why, why wouldn't we? Because we're, it's all, it's all under the umbrella of humanity, you know? Yeah, that makes, makes sense. Like, those people are in this world. Let's tell their stories. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> if, if you were, say, starting out um, now as a young person, or I guess it'd be, what would you tell young Trevor if they were starting out now or someone else like that wanted to do this um, and maybe either had your background or completely different background of life experiences? What would you maybe tell them would be a good way to get started in this or, or experiences that you're like, don't do that or do this, any of that kind of stuff? <laughs> uh, well, I would say, you know, hold hold your aesthetic sense close to you because that is one thing that makes you unique. Um, that is that is something that is an asset that no one can take away. Like no one can design a show the way that I design a show. 
I can't design a show the way that another costume designer can design a show. Um, I think what's great about the industry is that on many levels, it values that uh, individuality. Um, and I think that's that's something that can keep one working for a very, very long time. Because um, no one can sort of, no one can really do what you do the way that you do it. You know, that's, that's like really cool to be in a space like that. <clears throat> I think also uh, some advice that I would give too, or I don't know, suggestion, I don't know. Um, <laughs> not to be discouraged when work doesn't happen and to remember sort of what we do is extremely subjective and that often like when someone disagrees with with something really investigate why and it's and that it's okay to ask this person if it's a director uh whoever it is why especially if you Mm -hmm. don't understand why because i think often it can be like a no and it's actually important to understand why that's a no or sort of like really what is in between that yes and no because i think sometimes the best answers sort of lie in that space in between that gray space between the yes and the no. Uh Um, And you're like, Oh, you don't like the color gray. Oh, got it. Like, that's why you're saying no. And it's like, you know, maybe it's a conversation of, have you tried French gray? Have you tried a warm gray? (laughs) And maybe it's not gray at all, but like, you know, I think it was actually like, there's a lot of space sort of for nuance in our conversations. So hold that tight as well when you're, when one is in a design conversation that sometimes a no really isn't a no and it just needs to be, that's just like what that is, is an opportunity for conversation or an opportunity for you to put, uh, uh, to like uh, bust out the creativity again and, you know, figure out something together. Um, Uh And to also understand that it's not, um, that it really is a collaboration to understand that everyone brings their own strengths to the table and that it's not it's not a competition and it's not about uh well let me outdo this let me do outdo that like we're creating a composition and the only way a composition works is when there's collaboration like a very true collaborative experience that is happening when everyone is sort of like working together and we're creating this thing it's like a community garden like the only way a community garden works is when people all do their part the only way yeah. that society works is when everyone does their part and there's no hierarchy. It's about uh, the role that sort of ultimately, all the roles that sort of ultimately help something to be successful. <clears throat> that's, that's, I think that's good advice for somebody who's wanting to start out. I think that's lovely advice. Uh, is, we're about at our time for the day, but is there anything else that you'd like to share with our uh, podcast audience or just the world in general? Um, I would say that I think, uh, well, I, I can talk about what I'm working on right now. Maybe that's cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What are you working on? So, I know that so, you, we had to take some time to schedule you in here. You've been working, which is good. <laughs> it's was, it was, it was pretty great. It's pretty great. Um, right now I'm the costume designer at uh, Minnesota Opera for Albert Herring. And what is unique about this is that it's, uh, it's going to be performed in the Ordway. Um, it's going to be filmed. So ultimately stream May 22nd. Um, opera singers are might. New things. New things are happening. Um, <laughs> and, and what's really... Yeah, might. 
Yeah, I'm like, I I am excited about it. I don't know. I don't know what's going to oh. happen. It's yeah. a really cool team work on the show. Sarah Barr is doing scenic. May Chabotur is lighting. Jesse Cogswell is our uh, lighting consultant and kind of aesthetic consultant. Doug Schultz Carlson is our uh, director. Like, I think, I think it's going to be really cool. Um, Emma Gustafson is doing makeup and hair design. There's no wigs in the show per COVID to safety first. Oh yeah, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, what the shop is doing is amazing. And I think coming back after a year away from uh, really working in a similar way. Um, I love that shop before. I love that shop before, but I think now coming back when I think the stakes are much higher uh, and there's so much uh, a different set of kind of nuance, sense of nuance that we have in the fittings now. Um, between sort of the number of people in the fitting room, um, we wear smocks and PPE when we're working. Um, the, there's never a full, uh, fully staffed shop now, just again, for, like per safety guidelines. Um, so I've just come to, to be able to spend like a little bit more time with everyone in the shop and we can really talk about detail. And I was just realizing, oh, I, I, I feel like I just kind of, uh, blurred in and out sometimes with the shop and I was like oh this feels much more personal and much more intimate um and I'm, I'm learning I'm just learning so so much more about like what I do and mm -hmm. what the artisans and the craft folks do at the shop like I just really uh have so much respect for them and I I'm just in awe of what they do and sort of like our language together, like this language that sort of we developed over past shows. Now it's kind of, I, I think there's no way to be able to have done this show, to do this show. We're, we're in fittings. Um, <laughs> it's <Yeah>. very active <laughs> um, uh, without having that base. This is back to community garden is sort of like, well, you gotta have some good soil, come on. Yeah. I think we have, we've established some good soil. And I think now we're able to sort of plant these seeds and really sort of like nurture these these uh these clothes and sort of like this entire production to create uh the spectacle of the spectacle of Albert Herring that's gonna happen. Um so I'm I'm just I, I'm just super grateful to the shop and I'm I'm just like really excited. Um the performers are fantastic. Um we have great just like it's just it's just a lot of fun. It's really great to be back. Um and there's a sense of I think I just have a new sense of focus. <laughs> uh on the work that mm -hmm. i maybe didn't have before um and that there's space because I, I just don't i'm just not like doing a bunch of other things so like i'm yeah you're not I, working on like 17 shows so no there's time no. to do all that stuff yeah i'm super grateful yeah and i think this kind of is sort of uh the beginning of a new way of working for me um and really understanding sort of like how the the depth that one can go and sort of like the the cultivation of an idea and sort of like how fast you can put something out sort of like all of that is like how how quickly can you dive into something and and also get it uh produced uh while keeping everyone sort of like really making sure that we're all sort of on the same page on this journey because it's been mm -hmm. a pretty fast journey 
to get this, um, to really produce this show. Because, like, there's builds, we're shopping things, we're altering mm-hmm. things. So it's, it's a full-on production. We're not, it's not, you know, simply pulling from stock. Um, yeah. Which is, which is pretty great. Yeah. That's, that's, that sounds really good and really exciting to see what comes out of it. And a film, an opera that's filmed specifically for filming. Because I've seen operas that are filmed, but they weren't designed to be filmed. They just happen to also film them. So that'll be interesting how that pans out in the end. Yeah, this ain't no B-roll archive footage. Yeah, that's not what we're... (laughs) I'm assuming, and this is a guess on my part, but your costumes have to be different when you're being filmed than when you're 30, 60, 80 feet away from the audience, I'm assuming. There'd be a difference in the amount of detail or the, the bigness or smallness of something on a piece of clothing yeah yeah absolutely I think it's, it's definitely one one big consideration is scale because I've also just noticed that like I oftentimes like to work that way uh dealing dealing with sort of scale on that level and textures and I think for um not to speak for my colleagues but I think like we also often work with a lot of things that are just never seen on stage like mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of there's just a different set, sense of depth because often we're creating depth for that back row ideally uh-huh. or I, I i am and i think that um now we can have depth in a very different way and in a more realistic way i think sometimes um uh-huh. and what's great about this show i think too is like you i think we have that i have the opportunity to kind of create things that live in both spaces that live sort of like in like real clothes land, like real, real clothes that are actually costumes. And then we have things that are definitely very, I guess, what some people would say costumey, um, which is not necessarily a bad word either. Uh, I think sometimes that has, a, that, con- <laughs> that has a negative connotation, but yeah. Yeah. So what's good is like, there's a lot of just like textures and color variations and color combinations that I think are often lost that I think will actually really get to see uh uh through the film now and a different way of composing scenes because now like we might be really trying to compose a scene for one person you know for a close-up where normally like we're constantly sort of composing to sort of see this really vast space that is the ord way and now we can get really up close so kind of the way that we're seeing each other now which is so exciting it's so exciting to work that way and pull back, you know, there's, there's everything. Um, yeah, you still need some is, of those wide shots, yeah. That's it's, cool. it's so cool. It's so dynamic. It's just a new, there's such a new dynamism to the work. Uh, and also just being a way, I think, to, uh, that, that we can bring, you know, it's really, it's cool. It's cool. Awesome. Well, I look forward to getting to watch that. You said it was in May? That that's supposed uh, to be happening? I think it's May 22nd. Mm-hmm. It begins okay. streaming, yeah. Okay. And it's, uh, and it's free. It's free. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, I love, I love that because then more people get to see it that can't afford well, what we do a lot of the times. So yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, and I hope it, oh, I also hope it, hope it opens up the space for folks who may not have access or that be, that maybe that because of the ticket price or the mm-hmm. distance, like where the Ordway is geographically. Um, so I, I just hope a lot more people are able to to experience the opera and experience this version of of this particular show. Awesome. 
Well, I look forward to that. And I really want to thank you, Trevor, for coming and chatting with me today. It's been super fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was great. Thank you. Great questions. Thank you for joining us for this episode of We Shadows. If you enjoyed it, please recommend it to your friends, colleagues, and students. If you loved it, like us on Facebook and please hit the follow or subscribe button on your chosen podcast platform. We Shadows was created by Liesa Behrens, Rachel Lanto, and Anita Kelling. It was recorded over Zencaster and produced by Anita Kelling. Our theme music was composed and performed by J. William Kelsch. We Shadows can be found wherever you search for your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in this week, and be sure to check us out every Wednesday for new episodes.